do you think of yourself as living in like a divine you know theo drama or like a story like do, do you do you are you one of god's characters in his story i'm working on it Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. I always I always think about how I can improve that introduction. It's not the best introduction. Maybe I should add, you know, so that you can have wisdom for life or something. But that's not it's not really the truth. I just love thinking about this stuff. And if you like thinking about it, then you're gonna like the show too. This episode is uh, another really fantastic one. I'm really excited um, to get into it. I have with me Dr. Kenny Pierce, and we're going to be talking about uh, primary causation, grounding, foundational grounding, um, arguments for God's existence, why theism makes more sense or better sense or is a better explanation of reality than uh, naturalism. It's going to be wild. I'm really excited about it. We're going to be talking about authorial analogies. If you know me at all, you know that I love thinking of God as the author of creation. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. If you guys like this podcast, you want to see me stick around, you want to see me continue having uh, authors and thinkers and philosophers and business people on, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can support this podcast for as little as $3 a month and as much as $100 a month. We are, uh, we've got some things in the works working on becoming a 501c3. So there's some tax write-off benefits too. But uh, I appreciate everyone for making this podcast happen. You can find a link to the description in the description to my Patreon. You can also support this podcast by uh, buying some merch. You can find that in the store tab uh, on here on YouTube. You can buy shirts like this. Boom, with my with my ugly mug on it. Uh, you can support the work of Jason Hahn, who's been making a lot of graphics for me, uh, or Jordan Singer, who's, who made this classic uh, Parker's Pensies logo. And um, there's a bunch of ways to find me. Twitter, uh, Facebook, Parker's Pensies, Pensiers, uh, Facebook group, uh, Discord. You can find all the links in the description, all that good stuff. But uh, let's get into it. Let's start thinking about some cool stuff here. So uh, again, I have with me Kenny Pierce, and we're going to be talking about primary causation, what that means, grounding God, uh, and thinking of God as an author of the world. So here we go. Dr. Pierce, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is awesome. This is a really cool paper, and I have to give a shout out to uh, Johnny Waldrop. Um, he sent this, or yeah, he sent this to me and told me how much I'd like it, and he was right. This is fantastic. Um, but Dr. Pierce, before we jump in on primary con- causation and foundational grounding, I want to get a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into philosophy in in the first place? Sure. So, um, so there's kind of kind of two streams in terms of uh, what happened to me when I was when I was young here, hmm. uh, and and both of these stories are one you'll find once you'll find fairly common among people who end up being philosophy professors. Um, one is that I had a, a lot of religious questions that nobody seemed to be able to answer. Yeah. And after a while, I figured out that it wasn't just that nobody in my little church in my small town could answer them. Hmm. Right. That, that that kind of nobody could answer them. And there's a lot kind of more thinking to be done. And a lot of interesting things have been said about them through the ages, but never kind of an um, ultimate, uh, ultimate indisputable resolution. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I got really interested in that sort of thing. Uh, the second kind of stream was just that I read a lot of science fiction as a kid. Nice. And so there were was a lot of uh, a lot of what if questions. Mm hmm. 
and um, just all of those things that get to, to stimulating your mind, right? And so I started finding that um, there were people who put a lot of effort into addressing these questions really seriously yeah. uh, in fascinating ways. So I went off to, uh, to college. I was thinking that um, computer science sounded like a career and philosophy sounded like a hobby. Yeah. And that was, that was kind of the plan that I pursued. But uh, as time went on, it started to become uh, clear that somebody might actually pay me to do philosophy all day. And yeah. uh, that sounded neat. That's awesome. Uh, the the sci-fi got me. It, it, did you have a particular, uh, like a favorite author, a sci-fi author? Yes. My, my favorite author that I'm always promoting is Theodore Sturgeon. Oh, okay. My dad always, yeah, always tells me about Sturgeon. Okay. Yeah. yeah, not a lot of people have heard of him, but let, let me give you the, the short version of why he's so important in the history of science fiction. Yeah. Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut both yep. listed him among their biggest influences. Okay. He invented Star Trek's Prime Directive. Okay. And also the Ponfar, which is the like Vulcan uh, mating ritual. <laughs> he wrote the story with the first green swamp monster that was the inspiration for Swamp Thing. Wow. Well, the story is called It with an exclamation point from the okay. 1940s. It's a fantastic story, a little bit of kind of horror fantasy, you know. But uh, yeah, so, and he also, uh, his novel More Than Human is one of the first hive mind stories. Oh, sweet. And um, David Crosby from The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young said that the, the concept of blesh, which is how the people come together to form the hive mind was how these early uh, like psychedelic rock bands thought of oh, their wow. relationship within the band. So, um, so, so the, these are my kind of uh, outside philosophy hobbies, right? My, yeah. so thanks for letting me geek out on that. For a little no, bit. that's awesome. My, my dad, my dad's obsessed with sci-fi. He, he, uh, he, he's an author in, uh, in his own right, but he, mm -hmm. he always made me, uh, you know, read this stuff growing up and I, I got hooked by Philip K. Dick. So I, Oh, I know yeah. it's, it's kind of like there's so many uh, dickheads out there, right? But but uh, I can't help it. He's so good. Yeah. 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 For sure. Well, um, so I don't know if there's a good transition there. Talking about God as the author or something like that. Um, <laughs> you have this paper, uh, foundational grounding and the argument from contingency, um, back in like 2016. But uh, you said you've been you uh, developing these ideas further. Didn't I think that paper won some kind of award, right? Yeah, so in 2016, it won the uh, Sanders Prize in for the best essay in philosophy of religion, and That's then awesome. it was um, published in the 2017 edition of Oxford Studies in Philosophy of Religion. Uh, and I might just mention this book, yep, because uh, my my new book here just published a few months ago. This is a debate with Grandma Oppie. Yeah, uh, I do present. The, the same argument kind of again in the book in a way that's oh. more designed for beginners. Oh man, Whereas, I had no idea uh, that there was, that's awesome. And so it's against Oppie. And so I'm, I'm assuming Oppie responded to that in the book then. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, so I would, would really recommend that you, uh, you check out this book because you'll find there the 2017 paper, which you can find open access online um, is a presentation of the argument, you know, that's kind of meant to be read by other philosophy professors and that sort yeah. of thing. But here in this um, debate book, there's a presentation of the same argument that's meant for beginning students, and that also includes a response from from Graham Oppie, who's one of the top atheist philosophers today. Yeah, that's awesome. Is that, uh, I think, did Dustin Crummett edit that? Is he? Yeah. Okay. And then you and Oppie are speaking, or have you already, on his YouTube channel? Uh, we will be, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So okay, so I don't know if that'll be out by this time or not, but uh, listeners, go go check that out too. Dustin's got a 
channel. I'll I'll uh, link that in the description. That'll be awesome. I love it. I'm pumped for it. Um, well, so uh, the paper's broken down into like three parts. The first one, um, you say that in order for the argument from contingency to succeed, the explanation of history in terms of God must not be a causal explanation. So we need God. Contingency is supposed to get us God, but God can't be the the cause of history. Uh, two, God is the foundational ground of history. Uh, and then part three, the uh, explanatory advantages of the hypothesis of, of God being the ground of history. Uh, that can't be had within the confines of naturalism. Uh, so I thought maybe we could start out by just if, if someone's totally lost already, um, thinking about the argument from contingency. And maybe can you distinguish that for us? Um, how is that different than like Kalam cosmological arguments? Sure. So it's sometimes called the Kalam or first cause argument. Um that argument says uh, something like everything that begins to exist has a cause, but mm -hmm. the universe began to exist, so the universe has a cause. Um, in contrast to this, the, the argument from contingency is usually framed in terms of explanations rather than causes. Mm -hmm. Cause and explanation are closely linked concepts, so sometimes we end up talking about causes along the way, but you start out with explanation. You say the the kind of the physical universe or all, all this stuff here, it's it's contingent, meaning it didn't have to exist. Mm -hmm. There didn't have to be a physical universe. Certainly, there didn't have to be this exact physical universe with this exact history. Uh, and so why is the universe as it is? And the argument from contingency wants to uh, to kind of say that we need some explanation outside the universe that's going to be the ultimate explanation of why the universe exists. Now, kind of the backstory to this paper is that um, I'm, I kind of, in terms of what I wrote my PhD on and in terms of uh, what I did kind of most of my earlier work on, I've been, I'm primarily a historian of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about historical figures like Leibniz, uh, like Thomas Aquinas, who, Samuel Clark, who pushed this argument from contingency. And something that's interesting is that all of them say one of the advantages of this argument from contingency is that you don't have to prove that the universe has a beginning in time in order mm -hmm. to use this argument. Yeah. So the, the Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides and then Thomas Aquinas, they both say we know from the Bible that the universe has a beginning in time, but we can't actually prove that by reason to an atheist who doesn't believe in the Bible. Yeah. And so we need an argument that doesn't depend on that premise mm -hmm. because the atheist uh, won't accept it and we don't have any rational way of making them accept it. And that's why the Kalam argument doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so and then Leibniz and Clark later, they say the same thing that we that even if the universe is goes back forever, still we can infer the existence of God by the argument from contingency. Mm -hmm. But if you look at people pushing the argument from contingency today, like Timothy O'Connor, for instance, they often still end up talking about a cause of the origination of the universe. Mm. And so then not, not, you know, whether their argument works or not, right. doesn't have the advantage that the classical proponents of the argument from contingency um, said that it had. Yeah. Uh, and then it kind of gets into this mess about how are we to understand in kind of contemporary Big Bang cosmology, how are we to understand the finite age of the universe? Is there more to physical reality than our universe that started with our Big Bang? 
Um, is there really kind of a first moment and does that matter to the argument? Yeah. You know, all this, all this stuff, really interesting, complicated stuff. Big time. Like yeah. Physics and philosophy of physics. Right. Yeah. Um, but the, the clam, uh, argument or first cause argument gets deep into the weeds of that. And I kind of suspect that it might actually be undermined when you look closely enough mm. at, the, at the physics there. Okay. But the argument from contingency doesn't depend, isn't supposed to depend on any of that. Yeah. Right. It's supposed to ask this question as Derek Parfit put it in the title of an essay, why anything, why this, <laughs> right. It's, so good. It's, it's the question it starts with. Um, and, and we're supposed to be able to, to kind of infer uh, a, let's say a non-naturalistic explanation of the natural world standing outside the natural world by asking and answering that question. Yeah. So I, I love to, to think of uh, like the clum is like, you know, the start to the race, like why, you know, it's, it had to have a start and, and contingency arguments are like, wow, whatever, man, maybe, maybe it's an infinite race. Maybe it's always been, but why, what's holding up the track? Why is, you know, yeah. why is this grounded at all? Like, yeah, sure. You could trace it back. I don't, I don't care. Trace it back as far as back as you want or keep going but there's something undergirding this whole race going on. That's not right. like, I mean, it's super simplistic, right? But yeah I, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, and I love the, the example that Leibniz gives when he talks about this. Hmm. Uh, I just love because, so Leibniz talks about the book uh, Euclid's elements of geometry. Yeah. Which was something like would still have been used as a textbook when Leibniz was learning geometry as a, a child. And, and Leibniz of course is, co-discoverer of calculus so he's big into geometry right yeah it's an important yeah. book for him and it would have been 2000 years old when he was using it and so his copy would have been copied from a previous copy from a previous copy from a previous copy you know long before the invention of printing mm. back and back to euclid and leibniz says uh you know imagine that euclid didn't really write the book either imagine that euclid copied it from a previous copy which was copied yeah. from a previous copy and so on forever and leibniz says Look, we still want to know why were there ever any books in the first place? Yeah. Why were they written like this? Why are they full of valid proofs and not invalid ones? Why yeah. is it a math book and not a novel? Why, like, <laughs> there's there, right, there's so many other ways this could have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the fact that each one's copied from a, from a preceding one doesn't answer any of those questions. Yeah. Um, Leibniz has a deterministic view of the universe, so he thinks you can think of kind of the universe just like that. Each state at each time is copied from the previous state. You can just read it off if you're, if you're good enough at physics or whatever. Yeah. Like things. Uh, but that doesn't explain why the whole sequence is as it is, because there's so many other ways it could be. Yeah. That's so good. I, I love, um, I'm glad you brought up the your, your past as a, a historian of philosophy, because it comes through in your papers where you'll just drop in like these nuggets from the history of philosophy. And I love that. I Sometimes people... Um, Sometimes I get I get crap for that because I add in too much in my philosophy papers and I'm like, dude, just give me the argument. I don't want to hear. But I love I love when you're adding this extra. Like it enriches it. Um, and you could probably just be, well, you know, as we all as we all know, Leibniz says. But then you throw in like a nice chunk from Leibniz or something, and I really appreciate that. So I, I love the way you write. Um, I want to move on to um, to capital H history. Uh, yeah. You, you describe it as this uh, complex event uh, that needs explanation. Um, I can't remember if you argued for that or not, or if you just said like, look, it, it, it needs an explanation. Like it's, it's, is it, is it obvious? Is it like a postulate? Is it, is this argument for someone who, um, who does think that the capital H history needs it or, or do we need to motivate that? 
Yeah. So, um, so he, what I mean by history with capital H is the complete sequence of causes and effects, past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at this from an eternalist perspective. We're looking at kind of a total timeline, past, yeah. present, and future. And we're looking at all the instances of cause and effect that happen along the way. Um, now, uh, one thing about that is that it's pretty clear that it's contingent and you can make some arguments from physics that support that. It's also a highly intuitive premise. You can make arguments from kind of some practical, uh, you know, practical stuff about like, you know, this, this desk that my computer is sitting on could have been an inch to the left, surely. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, Leibniz's example is, uh, it's hard to believe that it's a necessary truth that Spinoza died in the Hague. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, he could have hung out in Amsterdam instead or whatever. Right. Um, and so there are all these kind of reasons to suppose that, um, that things could have been otherwise, including these sorts of events in history. And in general, what's contingent needs an explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in that paper, I think I spend at least as much time arguing that um, that history exists as that history needs an explanation, right? Yeah. So, but but generally, uh, you know, we believe in complex events. There, we don't just believe in particle interactions or something. Yeah, we also believe in uh, in weddings and wars and and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in this case, we're talking about kind of a, a bunch of uh, connected interactions, causal interactions, uh, in kind of the total timeline of the universe. Yeah. And, and that's what I mean by history. Okay. So, um, so when we're, yeah, this got this capital H history and, uh, that's the, the sum of all the events or the total totality of them. So whether it's, you know, the past is infinite or finite, whatever, just stipulate like this, this is everything where we're talking about the whole thing. Um, if someone holds to, a particular view of PSR uh, principle of sufficient reason and says like, well, every fact that um, stands in need of an explanation has one, but the the great total fact doesn't stand in need of explanation because it's the total, it, you know, maybe it's a category error or something like that. What, what do you make of, of someone, you know, using a, a PSR like that or something? Yeah. That's actually one of the reasons I talk about events and not facts. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. Um, that's right. That's right. And, and also not uh, objects. Yeah. So any kind of version of the cosmological argument, right, that's saying we can prove the existence of God or, or argue for the existence of God from the fact that there's anything at all, mm-hmm. usually it uses some kind of big totality, a sufficiently comprehensive entity, it's sometimes said in the, right? So you need yeah. something that is kind of inclusive enough that nothing natural could explain it. That's going to yeah. kind of be this totality. And so some people talk about the universe as a whole, but uh, there's some question about whether the universe as a whole is really a thing. Yeah. Right. Whether, because not, so I don't think that any random collection of parts go to make up an object. I okay. don't think there's an object made out of my left shoe in the Eiffel tower. Oh, we got so, restricted right? composition here then. Okay. Right. So once we've got restricted composition, there's no guarantee that the universe exists yeah. as one object that would have one right. explanation. Okay. And um, I'm also, um, I'm not too deep into this to to kind of be able to give the the whole details of it, but I'm suspicious of inf- of infinitely conjunctive facts and propositions. Okay. Because infinitary logic has a bunch of weird properties. So if you yeah. allow in symbolic logic, 
if you allow infinitely long sentences, mm -hmm. weird things start happening and your logic doesn't behave like what you might have learned in an introductory symbolic logic class. Yeah. Uh, and so that makes me think, I, I don't want to, I'm kind of suspicious of that kind of stuff. I don't want to rely on it, right? Yeah, yeah. But when we have kind of, when we think about the composition rules for events, and when we think little events make up a big event, I kind of think, well, if we've got this continuous causal chain going out, then we're pretty safe. Yeah. Right? So if we've got kind of everything that followed on from uh, the Big Bang whatever that's all kind of causally connected back to it uh that's it seems pretty safe to say that there's a big event like that okay um things might be trickier i i might maybe i'll get into some problems about the details of physics too because maybe if inflationary cosmology is right or something then yeah then maybe not everything's connected causally that way so yeah well i was thinking um does this does this commit us to like like four dimensionalism or like uh like a you know block universe or or uh, b theory of time to to be able to do we need to view the whole event at once or does it need to be like this big thing like that? Or, or can the atheist uh, likewise? Uh, 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 yeah. So it's probably like everything else where the A theory makes everything unnecessarily complicated for no good reason, <laughs> but it might still work. Okay. So okay. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about how atheists or presentists might, um, might make things work. Cause I just like, all the time it's like everything gets so complicated and messy and i just don't see why they're playing that game okay um yeah. but a lot of people in philosophy of religion especially a lot of theists are really committed to those views yeah um, i know it and i have to say i've just never understood why and and i have to constantly be reminded to tell people that i'm assuming b theory and eternalism yeah because they often this has happened with this paper actually oh, okay uh, they, they often uh they often misunderstand uh me because that assumption for me is so deep that i forget to state it yeah and, That's and i and i often don't think about what happens if you uh if you reject it until somebody raises that as an objection i've noticed that too because I, I talk a lot with philosophers of religion and it's like this live debate live option and if you go other places maybe even like philosophy of time type stuff if someone's really deep into philosophy of time then then they might be like oh yeah sure my my neighbor you know is a moving spotlight or something but uh but usually it's like, well, wait, why wouldn't we go in for, for four dimensionalism? What, what are you talking about? Eight theory? What, where are we? It's yeah. all fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so much simpler in terms of making sense of relativity. And it's so much simpler in terms of making sense of an atemporal God. Mm. And it's so much simpler in terms of just like uh, putting things into symbolic logic. Mm. Um, and it just, the yeah, the A theory and presentism, it just creates a bunch of unnecessary mess and I don't understand what's going on with it that's and why good. people want it. Yeah, that's good. Um all right, so we, we got so we got some so capital H history. Um, I'm glad that you made that uh I'm glad that you made the distinction between facts and events. So it's it's the whole uh event uh, and it needs explanation. Um but the explanation for history um it, it can't be causal because history is the sum total of all the causal events. So you'd be like putting a causal event outside of what's supposed to be the whole museum of causal events. Right. So then, um, so then you go in for, for foundational grounding, which in the paper, and we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but uh, it's synonymous. It's a better uh, uh, translation of primary causation. Like, can you explain your, your reasoning there, uh, how foundational yeah. grounding relates to primary, primary so, causation? So classical theists in the medieval tradition 
they talk about um, God as the the first cause, as it were. Mm -hmm. And in the tradition following on from Thomas Aquinas, who uses this term first cause in Latin, prima causa, right? Mm -hmm. In the tradition following on from there, it's often called primary causation. Mm -hmm. um, these classical theists, even before Aquinas, people like uh, Ibn Sina, uh, they seem to be committed to the claim that God can't be the same kind of cause that a billiard ball is. Yeah. Because they're committed to kind of a general view that none of our words can apply to God in exactly the same sense that they apply to created things because of yeah. how God's holy other. Got to be so analogical, God, not univocal, and definitely not equivocal. Right. Yeah. Right. So there, some of them might even think, like Maimonides might think it's just straight up equivocal. Whoa, uh, okay. Maimonides is pretty radical on the apophaticism. So if you're wow. saying anything positive about God, you're probably not saying something true. And this might be the same in like Pseudo Dionysius. Sure. So, okay. So Aquinas is kind of thinking these folks don't do enough to preserve kind of ordinary religious talk of the sort you'd find in the Bible or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so he'd have kind of a, a disagreement. He has disagreements with Maimonides and Pseudo Dionysius. He doesn't always like to admit that he disagrees with people, right? He likes to kind of interpret them in a friendly way so that, <laughs> right. so that yeah. he seems like it seems like everybody's all happy and agreeing. Right. Um, but the um but one way or another, they're all gonna agree that God doesn't cause things the same way a billiard ball causes things. Yeah. Uh, and so they call this primary causation, and it's different than secondary causation, which primary causation is God's kind of creating and sustaining the universe, and secondary causation is the causal relations that happen inside the universe. Yeah. Okay. Now, the word itia in Greek and the word causa in Latin um, that we get in this kind of classical tradition, these words mean basically any answer to a why question. There's a classic paper I cite in called by a guy called Hokut uh, called Aristotle's Four Becauses, <laughs> right? That's good. Um, because the, the, the point is it's, we have a narrow conception of cause today that's shaped by the role of causation in science. Yeah. And it's like just efficient, right? It's like just hammer yeah, that just efficient, maybe even like a, yeah. Just secondary efficient causation, right? That's okay. what we mean by cause, I think. Okay. And and I've got no interest in trying to force the English word cause to do more work than that. I think that causes more confusion than it's worth. Sure. Um and uh, and I wouldn't want my use of the word cause to cause confusion. I know, I was just going to say, yeah, it causes it, yeah. So um, so what I think is, well, we've got, we need some other kind of explanation, mm -hmm. right? And there are other kinds of explanation that aren't causal. Um, and so what kind of explanation is going to do this kind of work of explaining the totality of, of causation? And that's where I reach for grounding. Yeah which is a hot topic in Super. contemporary metaphysics, has yeah. been for the past maybe 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people have a lot of different views about grounding. Some philosophers reject it entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, I do just want to say this isn't a, uh, this isn't like a special, special pleading for theism thing. This is a concept that's widely used by atheistic metaphysicians, yeah. um, even though not all atheistic metaphysicians like it. Sure. Um, philosophers never agree on anything, right? No, no. Um, but but I, I caught in your paper you 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 cited how you know this was more um, uh, disagreeable, is more hotly debated. Uh, but but today it's more commonplace. It's like, and I've had uh, Jonathan Chaffer on to talk about this a little bit because he was kind of at, at the beginning of that. I think 
um, just grounding is okay. We can talk about grounding and, and it's fun to like poke fun. I love poking fun at it too. And how everyone does talks about grounding now. And we, we don't talk about supervenience anymore, but, right. uh, but it's good luck not using it. It's just hard. It's a great tool. It's a great tool to use. Yeah. Well, and the big thing that I, I go into some, some detail about in the, in the book and trying to explain why, and this detail isn't so much in the paper and trying to explain why kind of everybody needs the concept of grounding mm. is that some, you know, some previous folks back to say the, the logical positivist back the Carnap and friends, they're thinking that all of science uh, and really all of human knowledge is at the end of the day, just physics, yeah. right? And it'd just be too long and complicated to talk about quarks all the time. So we come up with these abbreviations and shorthands for, and we'd say things like table, but this is really abbreviating some complex thing about quarks. Yeah. And and so this is often called reductionism, right? Or the translation view of reduction, where we're thinking that we can just translate chemistry into physics and translate biology into chemistry and so on. Yeah. There's actually no examples of that kind of reduction in science. Mm. No philosopher who believes in reductionism ever found any. Mm. The most commonly cited example is the reduction of thermodynamics to statistical mechanics. But it turns out there isn't actually a kind of fully successful translation of, say, Boyle's gas laws or the uh, second law of thermodynamics where you would say, oh, it's just a shorthand for this yeah. statement about the motion of particles. Right. That doesn't actually work. Um, and so if you read kind of specialist philosophy of physics papers on this, they're talking about this very complex relation. And so it's pretty well understood, right? The relationship between statistical mechanics and thermodynamics is well understood. Yeah. But it's not this like straightforward translation thing. There's another classic paper um, by Philip Kitcher, on um, how we explain uh, the concept of a gene in terms of DNA. So how yeah. you get from like Mendelian genetics to, um, to uh, biochemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and the really classic paper on this is from the 70s by Jerry Fodor called um, Special Sciences or the Disunity of Science as a Working Hypothesis. Yeah. That, uh, you know, so so basically, the this kind of translation view doesn't work. Yeah, the supervenience view it turns out doesn't work unless you add extra clauses to the traditional definition of supervenience that make it look more like grounding. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so what we need is what we need is, and what we're really talking about with grounding is how we get from more fundamental things to less fundamental things. Mm -hmm. Right? How the more fundamental things explain the less fundamental things. Yeah. Right. So somehow those quarks and electrons explain my desk. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and those kinds of things are, or quantum fields explain my desk, if you like. Those kinds of things are, uh, that's the kind of relation that we're talking about with grounding. Yeah. And those are, um, those aren't causes. Well, they don't have to be causes in the strict, uh, you know, secondary uh uh, efficient causal sense, um, but it, though they're explanations, and and uh, so you're broadening right. out this idea uh, of causation, primary causation. That's why foundational grounding is a better word uh, than primary causation. Right, and so and so, um, God, the primary causation that the classical theists talk about already has at least one of the key features of uh, grounding, or two of the key features of grounding. Yeah. One is 
it's a relation between a more fundamental thing and less fundamental things, yeah. right? Because yeah. God is kind of the ultimate, most fundamental thing in the classical theistic picture. And the second way is just that it is a form of metaphysical explanation that is not the same as the kind of explanation, as the kind of causal explanations, efficient causal explanations that would occur in science. Yeah. You know, and yet it's like a making it the case relation, right? It's yeah. God's, yeah. God's creative activity makes it the case that um that the universe exists however exactly you're understanding the universe yeah i love that i caught that in the paper um so so then in in your model you have these three stages god performs an act of the will uh this act of the will constitutes uh big h history capital h history and three history is the narrative uh the narrative ground of particular created things like you and me which the last one is so they're all good, but the last one really is getting to me. Um, so God performs the act of a will. Uh, and you give this example, you say each of these have, you know, non-theological examples. Um, and the first one, God performs an act of the will, an example be an agent in her action. So just, right. the, I mean, is it, we, we call this agent causation, right? And so we're getting back to the, is, is that, is that right or no? Well, I'm not, I'm, um, I'm not so sure. Okay. Uh, so I think somehow you need to think of an action that's sustained over time, right? Like a, like a dance. Oh yeah. You gave that example. And, and if you're thinking about something like a dance, it's not just, so some agent causation pictures, typically they're like thinking the agent, whatever the agent turns out to be on these agent causal pictures, right? Some kind of <laughs> substance. Yeah, yeah. causes some first event that's like an act of will or something, or maybe an, okay. event, maybe an event in the brain. And then it kind of sets in motion this causal sequence that leads to my waving my arm around or whatever. Okay. Right? Not thinking about that relation here, right? Thinking about the way the agent who's the, the dancer holds the dance in being, mm. right? The, the dance continues to exist as long as the dancer continues performing the motions yeah and so this kind of the the activity or the event of the dance is is as it were sustained in being by the agent okay um okay so when it comes to god performing an act of the will uh as the foundational ground of capital h history um does that mean it's a, a continuous uh, God has to continually, you know, perform this act of the will in order for capital H history to exist. Yeah. I mean, I tend to think of God as atemporal, right. And that like oh, yeah. the theoretic block as depending on God's atemporal act. But if, but, but yeah, it's the, the act kind of continuously sustains history and being over the whole course of history, right. It doesn't just kick things off at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. The, okay. The whole course of history through all of time. Uh, is grounded in the act. Yeah. And I mean, as a Christian, like that sounds great because it's like, well, we, we want that. God sustains, you know, as part of his, his providential work. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think this, this grounding stuff, I think, especially theistic philosophers, I think they were talking about grounding and counter possible conditionals, hyper intentionality to use all the fancy words, yep. all this stuff that analytic philosophers used to say they rejected. The theist analytic philosophers used to say they rejected it too. Right. Or at least not appeal to it explicitly. Uh -huh. I think if you read this stuff from like the 70s and 80s, uh, I think it's pretty clear they've been using it all along. Mm. Uh, some of the atheist metaphysicians have, too, but especially the theists like they 
it was never really possible to formulate the view without this stuff. That's good. So, and so sustaining, right? Let's talk about God sustaining the world and being. Mm -hmm. This is a not a temporal relation like causation, where the cause comes before the effect, right? Yeah. It's a, a, a relation that's um, you know synchronic, as philosophers say, that that mm -hmm. kind of happens all at once, or they're they're simultaneous. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, a like simultaneous, continuous uh, dependence relation. And, um, you know, and, and what's happened is that it just turns out that classical theism or, or traditional theism is not the only metaphysical view that needs that kind of relation in order to work. Hmm. It, it turns out a lot of a lot of metaphysical views do need yeah. that sort of thing in them. And, and that's how, how I'm thinking about the role of grounding here. OK, that's that's helpful. So so, um, so we got uh, God performs this act of the will. Um, then the act of the will constitutes history. Uh, and, and you use the example of a statue and its uh, material, which would be um, should be familiar to a lot of people um, that study metaphysics, right? Uh, the act of the will, can you help us think through, like, the act of the will constitutes history. Um, uh, yeah, what's what's that word constituting? Um, what's the word constitute? What is that doing here? How is that helping us? Yeah, so I... Um... So I always say that that grounding is the relation or family of relations whereby more fundamental things give rise to less fundamental things. Mm -hmm. So there's a big debate about what sometimes called big G versus small G grounding. Okay. Which is the question of whether like Jonathan Schaffer, who you mentioned, and, and Kip Fine, they're big G grounding theorists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They think there's this one grounding relation and we can kind of say, we can kind of explain everything in terms of this relation. Then there are other people like uh, Jessica Wilson say, who think, you know, we do need these sorts of ontological dependence relations, um, but we can't just say, that, but they're, they're just not all the same, right? There are all these different ontological dependence relations. And I'm trying to be neutral on that question. Yeah. But because I'm trying to be neutral on that question, I need to say, like, well, what kind of relation is this out of all, uh, you know, what kind of ontological dependence relation is this? Um, and uh, what are kind of the best non-theological models to, to understand it by. Yeah. Right. And so I'm thinking, think about the, the statue and clay case. So the, um, the statue is not numerically identical with the clay in the sense that would be required by Leibniz's law. Mm -hmm. Because um, like if you smash it, the clay will still exist and the statue won't. Right. Um, and so they have different properties, so they're not numerically identical. Yeah. And yet somehow the statue is nothing over and above the clay. If you kind of put it on a scale, you only count its weight once, yep. right? There's, there's, and there's no extra matter that's in the statue that's not in the clay and so on and so forth. It's kind of, so it's somehow not numerically identical, but in some sense the same or nothing over and above. And we can get examples with actions like um, Jones's raising her hand constitutes her voting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've got kind of a, you know, a lower level description of the action and a higher level description of the action and kind of in uh, these total circumstances in the context or whatever, you know, raising the hand is the way to vote. Yeah. Um, and so on. And so history, you know, being an event, we might want a kind of action or event like, um, thing to, to constitute it. And so I'm thinking kind of in, in this way, as it were, God's, God's performing the, the action 
constitutes history. History mm. is nothing over and above God's creative activity. Yeah. Um, and so the the story of of the universe, or in some sense, just is nothing over and above God's creative activity. Yeah. Okay. That that that's really helpful. And now I'm seeing that. So so I mean, three follows naturally from that. History is the narrative ground of particular creative things, like you and me, because we exist in history. Um, and so history. I mean, it's built up, right? Like where we're grounded in history, history is constituted by God's active will and God performs the active will as an agent does um, their action. Um, So this is, this is awesome. You get to this point where you, you say fictional objects um, are to fictional uh, narratives in a, in an analogous case or a similar way. I don't know if you even say analogous, but in a similar way that, that we are to God. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm wondering, do we have to? Does this like commit us to ontological uh, pluralism or something? Are there different uh, ways of existing? Um, so I don't think uh, I don't talk about different ways of existing. So for me, yeah. this some people might think this is a notational variant, and that's fine with me. Mm. But there are reasons why I I like to talk this way. So I think the existential quantifier expresses existence. Okay, so if there's just an X such that X is human. This, that's just how you say humans exist, right? And yeah. and uh, and we can quantify over everything, including fictional characters. Uh-huh. Batman exists. Sure, fine. Okay, okay. that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but the thing is, Batman isn't real, right? And yeah. and um, even though he exists, and and real is the word in plain language that we use to kind of distinguish, right? It's the opposite of fictional. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the opposite of imaginary and so mm-hmm. on. Yeah. You say, well, you know, Sherlock Holmes exists, but he's not a real detective, he's a fictional detective. Yeah. Right. Um, and and you kind of need to talk about this way if you're gonna say sentence one of the example sentences I give in the the book going back to our science fiction is that there there are several varieties of Star Trek aliens. Mm. Right, or that, right. There are many different kinds of aliens in Star Trek. Yeah. Well, there's a there are. That's an existence claim, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so the um, and so we we do think that fictional characters exist, but they're they're not real. Yeah. And so what I rather than talk about different kinds of existence or different ways of existing, I talk about uh, different degrees or levels of reality. Yeah. And those are going to track. This is a pretty common view among grounding theorists. It's not universal. Okay. But those degrees of reality or degrees of fundamentality, if you prefer, they're going to track these grounding relations, right? Because the grounding is a an interlevel relation, mm-hmm. a relation between more real and less real things. Yeah. And the um, more fundamental, the more uh, real an object is. And fundamental, fundamentality comes in degrees. Yeah, that's the idea. Okay. That's good. I, so... Um, so God would be on this case, um, God would be the most real. He's the most right. fundamental. We right. are real, but we're less real than God because we're less fundamental. Sherlock right. Holmes is even less real than us. And the way that Sherlock Holmes uh, relates to Arthur Conan Doyle is a similar way that Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle relates to God, his author or creator. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. I love that, man. That's so good. Um. Okay, so with with um, God performing this act of the will, which is like the you know base level, um, people will say, well, um, 
then do my actions are my actions like over determined or you know uh do we just put god on the hook for all the evil that i've done in my life what, what do you make of that right so i'm going to distinguish kind of two different problems here yeah the the first problem is the author of sin problem mm-hmm. and the second problem is the kind of free will and theological determinism problem yeah now people don't always distinguish those but i think the authorial analogy shows clearly that they come apart yeah so the author of sin problem is the problem that God is really the one who does all the sinning mm-hmm. because I'm not like a real agent responsible for my actions. The problem with theological determinism is um, like saying, if God decrees all of my specific actions, then what are we going to say about free will? How are we going to explain evil in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think those clearly come apart. And this is why Shakespeare didn't kill Duncan. Macbeth did that. Let's go. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like that's right. That's, so the author of sin, author of sin problem is not happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, but Shakespeare decided that Macbeth was going to kill Duncan. Yeah. You see. Yeah. And this raises our kind of other problem about what this means about uh, whether Macbeth can uh, can have free will in whatever sense we care about. Yeah. And also our problem about you know, why would God create a history that goes like this if yeah. God has the kind of total control that you might think an author would have over their um, over their creation? Yeah. Um, now, uh, that's you know, this is so. So this is maybe the more uh, the more serious problem, mm-hmm. right? Is this problem about total control? Um. Let me just float something I'm I'm working on right now. Awesome. Uh, I'm I'm writing more about this. Um and uh can I shout out this is is based on um work by some other some other philosophers who are doing similar things about divine creation. Yeah. Let me mention Sam Liebens, Tian Chun Lo, and Megan Page. Okay. Um as people I'm drawing on in developing this idea. Awesome. If you look at first-person accounts by authors, um, it doesn't always seem like they have the kind of total control that's assumed here. Mm -hmm. That is, as it were, once the character is created, um, the character character seems to the author, as it were, to make certain demands or the story makes certain demands that it has to be continued in a certain way. And the author could uh, kind of force the story down an alternative path, but this would somehow violate the integrity of the artwork or Mm -hmm. the integrity of the character. And that seems like what a lot of theological libertarians want to say about God and creatures. That, of course, God could force us to do anything, but if God engages in that kind of force, it violates our integrity that makes us no longer free. Yeah. And I cite um, I cite uh, comments by uh, science fiction authors uh, Ursula Le Guin and N.K. Jemison nice. to uh, to support this yeah. uh, claim. But it's also something that's been explored a bit by Sam Liebens in his fantastic book, The Principles of Judaism. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm not necessarily committed to that view. I think we might be able to kind of salvage theological determinism. I'm not sure. Nice. A lot of people think it's like really obvious that theological determinism is a non-starter. Yeah. So I'm a theological determinist myself. I've worked on uh, my my master's thesis, which is like ridiculous to bring that up in in this conversation, but um, was working on uh, the authorial analogy of Kevin okay. Van Hooser. 
trying to uh, defend it against uh, the author of sin problem and uh, um, uh, epistemological self-defeat that like you sure. couldn't believe that. And so I love it. So uh, please go ahead and sa- uh, salvage it, man. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so I think, so I think uh, theological determinism might be okay, but necessitarianism is definitely not. Yeah, for sure. And that's sure. why I'm working on this kind of stuff, the question about how, going back to the contingency argument, right? Because exactly mm-hmm. what theism is supposed to be able to explain right. is why there is contingency, why the, mm-hmm. the world is this way when it didn't have to be this way. There's this fear that the theist is going to collapse back into necessitarianism because God yeah. has to create the best of all possible worlds or something. Yeah, like a modal collapse. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. I'm actually worried about. Okay. And and kind of if you end up without, if you end up not having theological determinism, mm-hmm. then of course human free will becomes a source of contingency. Yeah. Um, and and so I'm more interested in the like free will stuff and whether authors have total control and that kind of thing from the perspective of trying to see how much contingency um, does this theistic metaphysics actually give us. Yeah. So I, I really like that because um, a, a lot of the, the problems in philosophy of religion, they, they trace right back over. So um, I'm thinking the authorial analogy in like theological terms, it inherits a lot of the philosophical problems from philosophy of religion or philosophical theology. Like um, if like greatest possible worlds, um, if, if you have a greatest possible story, did God have to tell that story? Okay, now we have modal collapse, even in the authorial analogy. Okay, so it has to be a good story. Well, why would he pick this good story instead of this other good story? And so that you, the same conversation pops back up. I love it. It's so so fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah, so exactly the thing that's supposed to happen here, and this is all over Leibniz, for instance, mm-hmm. ex- exactly the thing that um, a being who makes a free and rational choice is supposed to get us. Mm-hmm. in the kind of classical theistic world picture given by the argument from contingency, right? Is it supposed to give us uh, something that's neither arbitrary nor ne- nor necessary? Yeah. Right? So yeah. it's somehow fully explained without necessitating. And and I kind of say in the, in the debate book, um, you know, I kind of admit it because I'm not much of a debater because I'm, I'm more interested in kind of dwelling on and exploring the problems and puzzles of my view rather than scoring sure. points, you know? Yeah. So I am, um, so not being much of a debater, I kind of, I kind of point to this is the trickiest part for me is this divine freedom yeah. and contingency stuff. Here's why I think that we can kind of get what we want here yeah. where it's kind of neither arbitrary nor necessary, but, but this is the place where more work needs to be done to work out the details. And, and that's stuff that I'm working on now. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to see some more of that. The the um I, I like I like the the note about the character and like once you've made him once you've made him or her uh th- they have certain demands of you like if you made Samwise Gamgee into like a rapist without explaining some kind of psychological break or something like that's you can't do that. Tolkien could not have done like he he can't do that without destroying his character. And if God's a good author, like he he couldn't do that either. But it's not because there's some limitation on God, but because God has um, created a character this way or set his own limitations on saying, this is who I will, this is my idea of Samwise Gamgee. And then you right. have to go into God's ideas and his relationship to the ideas. Yeah. And, and, so the, and so the question here is, um, do we have the view that um, all of God's ideas of all the possible creatures are just like the space of metaphysical possibility? Mm-hmm. Right. 
um, in which case you wouldn't get like what the Molinist thinks that that um, there's more than one action that's possible for this character, and yet right. one of them is the one the character would do. Right. That's the right. But if you have something more like, um, if you think that Asgard is kind of thinking up these characters, mm -hmm. uh, there's a sort of well indeterministic grounding, I would say. Okay. Where the kind of essence or idea of the character demands that it be developed in a certain sort of way on pain of violating its integrity. But those demands themselves are not necessitated by the character's essence. Yeah. What, so what, what, what would they be? Creative process could have gone otherwise. Yeah. Well, so I guess I'm thinking people who would, who would push back on Molinists and sit with the grounding objection and they say, well, well, so then what, what are, what is it, what's what's grounding though? It's like why um, must this character be this way in this situation? Yeah, so there's there's um not must right because you don't want to go with deterministic, right? So a lot of what I'm working on now is this um, this notion of of indeterministic grounding. Okay, and the idea okay. that grounds may not necessitate. I uh, can fully explain without necessitating. Okay. And so I think, like uh, Alex Proust has written about this in his, his great book on the principle of sufficient reason, that kind of, when you're thinking about an indeterministic outcome, mm -hmm. uh, like measuring the electron spin up rather than spin down, you should think like the, the prior state, right, fully caused and therefore fully explained the spin up measurement. Mm -hmm. Even though exactly the same state yeah. could have fully caused and therefore fully explained the spin down measurement. Yeah. And if you think that's the right way to think about causal explanation, mm -hmm. then you can do, as it were, the same thing with uh, grounding explanation. And um, so then what you need to do is find something in the essence, like some features of the character mm -hmm. that render intelligible this decision rather than that decision. Yeah. Um, and this all gets into the same kind of moves that get made in trying to make the divine freedom stuff work, right? Where Yeah. God has, as it were, competing motives. One of them explains why God creates this world. And it, at the same time, explains why the other motive wasn't effective. Yeah. Um, right. So um, you think something like um, God uh, create, God kind of values um, complexity and beauty. And that's why God created this world rather than no world at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Or this world and not no world at all. And maybe you shouldn't say rather than. Yeah. But in the possible world where God creates nothing at all, um, God uh, valued values um, the absence of evil, uh, ultimate simplicity. Right. Um, the absence of anything imperfect. Mm -hmm. And uh, God necessarily values all of those things. Right. Yeah. But not all of those values can be actualized at once. And so the the uh, values, as it were, that are um, motivating the uh, the actual world that God creates, those explain why this world is actual, and they explain why other worlds aren't actual. That's this is drawing on uh, on Alex Proust's his okay. paper, uh, "Divine Creative Freedom." So I, I guess, I, yeah, we don't have to. We, we could get super bogged down here, but just like, could you could you go one step further and just say, well, we have the explanation. We we would have the same explanation if well we wouldn't but if there was the world where God didn't create if that was the one that He actualized, we, you and I wouldn't be here talking about this. But 
there would still in like in principle be an explanation for why he chose that one instead of the other yeah with with including us so there is an there is a reason underneath that or is it like indeterministic that we it just he just created this one and not that one yeah so the the move i the move i make that i'm getting from Proust is that i deny that there are such things as contrastive facts okay so when you say p rather than q you're not really saying anything more than p and not q Okay. There's some kind of pragmatic thing where you're like expressing, I want this type of explanation, not some <laughs> other kind, yep. right? But but really the like objective fact is P and not Q. Mm-hmm. And you can always explain P and not Q by explaining why P and explaining why not Q in general. And yeah. so the fact that um, God values the existence of rational beings besides God's self, for instance, explains why God partly explains why God created this world and partly explains why God didn't refrain from creating. Okay. But it's not, it doesn't necessitate that he did create this one. Of course. Right. It doesn't necessitate. And so like the exact same facts could have explained something else. Yeah. Um, That is, that is something else could have happened and been fully explained given the same facts, which facts explain what would have been different in that case. Yeah. Okay. This is tough stuff. This is yeah. good. I think you're right to, to point to that to say like this is this is an area that needs to be developed. I'm glad that you're working at too. That you're not just going okay. Someone else do it. I'm, I'm glad that yeah. you're you're sticking to it. Um, when it when it comes to God, so God make made it the case because we're not using this like strong causal language, efficient uh, causal language. God made it the case. Um, we we went pretty quick over like the sin and evil. Like uh, I'd love to use Tolkien instead of Macbeth and stuff if we could, because I, I, it just helps me, but my listeners too, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I, I love this because like Tolkien, um, why did, why did um, Smeagol become Gollum? Well, because he, he had this evil desire to take the ring. The ring was partially causal probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, his, his cousin Deagle had the ring. And so there's this within the story intra narratively he has the explanation there's reasons right. for it and then extra narratively Tolkien wrote that Smeagol would turn into Deagle right or uh, would turn into uh, Gollum but it would be so crazy to try and arrest Tolkien and say like you evil murderer how dare you do that because there's different levels of explanation right yeah so um i i think so that's right that kind of Tolkien doesn't perform any of the actions mm-hmm. that Gollum performs, right? Um, he's responsible for Gollum performing those actions in this like authorial responsibility <clears throat> sense. Yeah. Um, now, some Thomists want to say uh, because of this difference of level and God as author, that means God's not a moral agent. God has no moral obligations to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is no problem of evil. Um, I, I really do not like this line at all. Yeah. Um, cause I think for one thing, I think Christians have an independent commitment to the claim that God kind of wants the good for us. And actually Aquinas uses that claim, um, in his explanation of why God creates anything at all. Yeah. Um, right. This, this claim that God, because goodness is diffusive of itself. It's a slogan for Plato, right. That like God wants the goodness of other things. Yeah. Um, and, and, but there's, so there's this philosophical commitment to it, even within Aquinas, there's also a, uh, a kind of theological commitment for Christians to divine benevolence or to even divine love. And I just think the, I think there's, there's a good reason to suppose that, uh, 
uh, you know, that Tolkien doesn't love Gollum. Okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, or doesn't want what's best for Gollum. Um, at least prima facie, right? Yeah. yeah. In the, you know, and so you can tell some kind of story maybe, but but now we're getting back to actually having to respond to the problem of evil, right? So yeah. they're, they're like, is oh, a yeah. problem about yeah. if Tolkien loves Gollum and wants what's best for him, why does the story go this way for Gollum? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a, and, still, that's a good question, right? Well, I think the, the, the authorial analogy opens up um, solutions within, you know, within the authorial analogy where you say, well, look, the, the plot would be a worse plot if, if mm -hmm. he didn't do that. And so there's a greater good. And even though he, Tolkien does love uh, uh, Smeagol, like the, it's a better story to be told if he turns in, well, that's not really good for Gollum. Like, no, it's not. But there, there's a, depends on what kind of story you want to tell. And if you're the author, you have the right, but then you get into like, well, aren't there moral obligations to the character? Yes, there are, but he still had his, Smeagol still had his reasons. And so you could go in for like a reasons responsiveness for free will or something like that. Like he still had guidance control. He still had reasons responsive. Yeah, yeah. No one messed with it with no one. If it was a, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Deus ex machina. Like if right. it didn't fit within the plot, then we could go, look, Tolkien's a bad character. Smeagol didn't want to do this and he forced him to do it, but. As right. long as there's consistency within the story, I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah. So no. So I think that I think that the authorial analogy opens up kind of productive ways of looking at the problem. Yeah. I think this is kind of all that anything ever does with the problem of evil. Is sure. That kind of there's there's a lot of kind of bits and pieces, different approaches we can take, like mm -hmm. Marilyn Adams' work on horrendous evils mm -hmm. or the skeptical theism stuff. Yeah. Or soul making, like all of these things. They're, they're, as it were, productive partial perspectives to yeah. take that kind of help us fit some pieces together to to work our way around the puzzle. Yeah. But they don't kind of solve the puzzle or make it disappear. No, I don't think that. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. Well, and I, okay, so I'll commend the authorial analogy more. I think I think it, it can bring all those together in a cohesive story. Um, not, not to solve, again, I'm with you on that, but, you know, skeptical theism makes sense in the authorial analogy because um well if you take c.s lewis now we're jumping around characters but c.s lewis wrote himself into the great divorce he's a character within the story you know like the main character and yet he's still the author upholding the whole story yeah and so he's got this outsideness he can that's a a, a continental word that van hooser uses but um he's a character inside the story interacting with his characters he can persuade them of things and and not violate their their volition but he's also the the character of the author upholding the story and he can see the, the plot development. So you can use soul building as well to say like, why is there hiddenness? Why is the author hidden from the characters? Well, for their own good, because he's developing their character, all sorts of stuff. I, I just, yeah. I love the authorial magic. You can bring uh, him in. Sam, Sam Liebens um, has this great paper, um, Hasidic idealism in okay. a, um, it's in a, a collection of essays on idealism that I edited with Ty Goldschmidt. A few years oh yeah. Ago. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, Hasidic idealism, Kurt Vonnegut and the creator of the universe. Mm. So, and it's about the uh, Vonnegut's uh, breakfast of champions where Vonnegut shows up and talks to Kilgore Trout, mm. who by the way is a parody of Theodore Sturgeon. It's a, a fish joke. Oh, no way. Um, so, Sturgeon, but Vonnegut, yeah. but, but so Vonnegut shows up in the story and talks to Kilgore Trout and explains to Kilgore Trout, I created you. Hmm. Right. So you've got Vonnegut inside the story talking about Vonnegut, the author outside the story. Yes. yes. And, and Liebens thinks that God's appearance. So he's a, Liebens is a rabbi. Mm -hmm. He thinks that God's, um, 
appearances in kind of the historical narrative yeah. of the Hebrew Bible and in kind of the history of the people of Israel has is understood something like this. And we have yes. to distinguish God, the character in the story from God outside the story. Oh, man, I love God that. writing God's self into the story like Vonnegut. Yeah. Um, and uh, and kind of the, you know, trying to look at some of the logical issues that this poses and the, and the ways that this should affect how we understand the various biblical statements about God, um, most yeah. of which are about kind of God, the character in, in history. Yeah. Uh, rather than the kind of unknown God outside. I'm getting like all flustered. That That's so fantastic. And I think that can help us with like Christology and stuff and, and uh, well, definitely with, with Old Testament stuff, but does God really care? Does God really um, change his mind? Well, what are, you, what are you talking about? Qua, uh, the character inside the story, like God is a genuine character, but he's still representing the ideas of the author himself. That's who he's meant to be. Um, and so like C.S. Lewis didn't change his mind because of a dialogue with a character in his story uh, as the author sitting in Oxford, but maybe within the story he did write. So I know some people will get really um, upset by that and say, well, now you're, you're a, this is somehow process theism. It's not process theism at all. It's a it's a good way of accounting for the the biblical text. But yeah, I'm getting all excited. This is awesome. I love this kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. So, um, I I don't think we we don't have enough time here to talk about why like naturalism um is precluded by this. But um, I I thought maybe we could just finish with you make this claim about ontological arguments and. Uh, it's usually assumed that like uh, contingency arguments depend on an ontological argument, um, but you're saying it's actually the opposite. Ontological arguments depend on contingency, or at least one does on this one. Um, can do you have that fresh in your mind? Can you help us with yeah, that? Yeah. So, okay. so my view um, is that, which I think, again, I I, I think that Thomas Aquinas thinks something like this. I okay. Uh, I'm. I'm not very much, uh, I don't say the same kind of things these neo-Thomists do, um, but it's, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty close actually to the, the Thomistic view. It's just that I have an idiosyncratic way of translating it into contemporary metaphysics, right? Yeah. That's always Um, a dangerous thing talking about Aquinas and, and, uh, what did Aquinas really believe? Because someone, you'll have a whole fight, but I like the translating it. Yeah. 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 So, so right. Translating doesn't necessarily mean saying what Aquinas said, right? Right. Because we're putting it in a new framework and a new set of concepts and so on. But Mm -hmm. anyway, so, um, the cosmological argument gives, reason to suppose that a necessary being exists mm-hmm. and then we have to understand um what would a being have to be like in order to be uh necessary in the way required and you can go all the way back uh to even cena on this his kind of most famous and distinctive philosophical move is his claim that in god there's no distinction between essence and existence uh-huh um, now you don't have to go all the way as strong as as Ibn Sina, but if you say God's God's essence must somehow include existence, that's what it would mean for a being to be necessary, mm-hmm. right? Is for the being's essence to include existence. Now, if there is a being whose essence includes existence, then there is a sound ontological argument. Yeah, and so the the you know the first premise would be a statement of God's essence, a real definition of God. Um, and then, and then we're gonna, and then you would be able to prove God's existence from that. But the, uh, but we don't know God's real definition. 
Yeah. God right. could prove God's existence, but yeah. Ex- exactly. I, I like to say there, there's a sound, there's a sound ontological argument, but God only knows how it goes. <laughs> right. Right. Because, because you would need to kind of grasp the divine essence to be able to, to give a real definition of God, not a nominal mm-hmm. definition to say what God really is or what it is to be God, mm-hmm. um, which is something that is impossible for us. Um, and this, I take it, is what Aquinas says is wrong with Anselm's reasoning. Mm. is that Anselm supposes that he's got a kind of grasp of the divine nature, which is impossible for humans. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and so, if this is right, then you can't use the ontological argument to prove the existence of God. Mm. Right? We can't, yeah. We can't. Yeah. Um, we cannot use the ontological argument to prove the existence of God. But if we've already accepted the existence of God on the basis of a cosmological argument, um, or if we've already accepted that there's a sound cosmological argument, we have good reason to believe there's also a sound ontological argument. Mm. Um, and uh, this can help us to, as it were, explain why God exists, mm. right? God exists by God's essence. And so we have kind of the structure of explanation that you need. Something that's uh, yeah. interesting here. So a lot of my kind of approach to grounding in the principle of sufficient reason Another philosopher I haven't mentioned yet who I draw heavily on is Shemik Dasgupta. Yeah. And especially I like this paper of his metaphysical rationalism. Mm. And um, Dasgupta says that his position is consistent with naturalism, right? But he also says, uh, look, in order to get this kind of principle of sufficient reason, say that everything that's apt for grounding is grounded, Ultimately, you're going to have to bottom out in a thing or things whose essence includes existence. Mm. So he's kind of saying the same thing that is a maximally satisfying explanatory structure has to go a certain way. Mm -hmm. It has to bottom out in a being whose essence includes existence or being who exists by essence, by exists essentially. And, um, And, you know, kind of if we can make sense of that notion... Then again, the, the question is kind of what's the best, most satisfying explanatory theory out of out of all the theories that have that structure? What's the best candidate for an essentially existing being? And I would note that in the paper, I don't argue that my model is the best model for uh, an explanation of history for an essentially existing being. I construct this model just to show that it's possible to get this explanatory structure on theism. Yeah. And I argue that it's not possible on naturalism. Yeah. But there's so many other theistic models and also models that are both non, you know, not traditionally theistic or not monotheistic and not naturalistic. Like pan, panpsychism or something. Yeah, some kind yeah. of uh yeah. Panentheism. Panentheism or a kind of pluralistic panpsychism that might yeah. ground everything in, in a plurality of minds, or there's uh or spinozism. There's yeah. there's Kind of so you know so to me part of the the next step, right, would be just I and in, I invite other people to develop other models. I want to hear about kind of all the different ways you might undertake uh, this task because all I did was outline one to show that it is intelligible and it explains yeah. the data. I, I didn't do anything to argue that it's the best. Yeah. Oh man, this is awesome. I'm so glad that you're you're still running with this. There's a there's a couple others doing like um even like authorial analogy work, like James Anderson's working on that. I'm, I'm trying to, 
I like the translating word. I'm trying to translate uh, Kevin Van Hooser's stuff from more <laughs> continentally type language to analytic uh, philosophy. I love it. I think it's helpful. Um, I want to finish with a question about like uh, your your personal uh, walk. I guess do you? Um, I don't. I don't think we use analogy here, but but there's this narratival ground. Um, you know, we're living in history, and history is grounded um, in this manner that we laid out with in a, in a authorial analogy type thing. Do you think of yourself as living in like a divine, you know, theodrama or like a story? Like, do do you do you are you one of God's characters in His story? I'm working on it. Okay. <laughs> that is one of the other things that I'm really interested in, and this connects up with my historical work. You know, um, George Barclay is kind of my main guy. Um, he, Leibniz has a biggest, bigger influence on my philosophy of religion work, but my kind of okay. historical scholarship, Barclay's been my, the philosopher I've written most about. Yeah. And, and Barclay, one of his most influential ideas, this isn't the idea that's most associated with him in intro to philosophy classes, but the idea that like actually caught on is this idea that infants have to learn to see. That when you first open your eyes, you don't, the thing you're seeing doesn't mean anything. It's like flat fields of color okay. or whatever. Yeah. And you actually can't see things at a distance until you've learned to kind of reach and grasp and correlate the visible with moving and touching. Yeah. And part of what this is kind of opening the door for is that so much of how we perceive the world is learned mm -hmm. by experience and by kind of our background and how we think of things. Mm -hmm. And Barclay, uh, a connection that not enough people have drawn in Barclay's works is that, you know, he argues for this and then he argues for immaterialism, the view that all of our perceptions are directly caused by God and there's no mind independent material world. Yeah. And he gets to the end of the principles. A lot of these early modern philosophers, they have some like devotional material at the end of their mm. philosophical works and all these secular scholars ignore it. Yeah. And he gets to the end of the, the principles and he says, it's a, a, a premise of the, the unthinking herd that we cannot see God, mm -hmm. right? They say, if only we could see God, we'd all believe. Yeah. But these people, he says, are making a mistake because you see, it's only one small collection of ideas that informs me of another human being. Whereas everywhere I look, I should be seeing God. Mm. And what he's thinking is that if you can learn to see the world rightly, if you have the right kind of background theory, the right understanding of what the world really is, you would see God everywhere. Yeah. You'd regard God as speaking to you through your senses. Mm -hmm. And you'd think that every action you take in the world is, as it were, a response in a conversation with God. Yeah. And he thinks that if you really believed that, it would change your life. Yeah. And so he's doing all this like weird abstract philosophy, all this immaterialism, talk about ideas, there's no material substances. And he's coming out at the end at, at this like, you know, picture of a, a God-bathed world in a yeah. famous phrase from somebody else. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of, I think the same thing, mm -hmm. right? But it's very hard to internalize these kinds of ideas. Yeah. Um, uh, but I do, I do think that um, one of the other, the other main argument that I discuss in the debate book is an argument from religious experience. Mm. And I think that the fact that religious experience is learned and it's produced on purpose by religious practices 
does not undermine its evidential value. Okay. Because a lot of our sensory experience and other things are are like that. Yeah. And so I think when you think about religious practice, it's it's in large part about trying to to learn uh, to see God everywhere. Yeah. Man, that's good. This was devotional. I really appreciate that. I I, I love. I love that line of reasoning because intuitively, or maybe just initially, whatever, um, you would. A lot of people would think, well, it should be an innate idea because God wouldn't leave mm-hmm. us without that innate idea. So if it's right. learned, then then it's somehow, uh, you know, uh, a result of some kind of malformed psychology that you're 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 learning to uh, put on your blinders or something. It's like, no, right. I, if we have to do this with the rest of reality, I'm not putting on my blinders when I'm looking at uh, a book in the distance. Then I'm actually right. coming to see. Why, why not have to come to see God, especially if he is a person, like a personal agent or like a an author? I have to learn how to interact with my spouse. It's taken me a long time. I'm still learning right. that. So, right. you know, that's not innate, but it's not uh, uh, an illusion. I don't think that she's an illusion, maybe. Yeah. And Sometimes. so if I can give you one more one more uh, please, reading please. recommendation. Yeah. Uh, Ritualized Faith by Terrence Cuneo. Okay. There's a book. Terrence Cuneo was a, it was, um, I think he was raised Dutch reform, but he converted to Greek Orthodoxy. Oh, snap. Okay. Um, but, but it's, this book is about the idea that the kind of knowledge or the kind of cognitive state that's involved in Christian faith is a kind of know-how for the life with God. Mm, yeah. And ritual is a way of, of learning how to live that life in community. Yeah. Um, and so it's not actually about kind of, maybe nobody knows facts about God and maybe some people don't even believe them who have a kind of faith. Maybe you just can't bring yourself to believe it. And yet you might learn how, um, as it were to, to live that life in community with other believers and with God Hmm. and, and how to, to view your life as interaction with God. Uh, and this might come through the right kind of, um, ritual practice. Yeah. Um, and and not through philosophical or theological reflection alone. Um, would you, wouldn't you eventually need to have like some kind of propositional like I do believe that God exists or or? Um, so I don't think you need anything as strong as belief. You need uh, something. Okay. Right? So like um, like suppose I mean this usually happens in cases that are kind of really emotionally fraught and difficult where there's a lot at stake. Uh-huh. You know, imagine a house has collapsed and someone you love was buried under the rubble. Yeah. And you might be, say, 90% sure that they're dead. Uh-huh. But as you're digging out, you call to them and you yell, hang on, we're coming. Right? Mm-hmm. If they're alive, you are really talking to them. Yeah. And really in relationship with them still uh-huh. in, in life. Right. Even though you actually believe that they cannot hear you. Yeah. Right. You're doing it anyway because you hope they can. Yeah. Right. And so I think states like that of kind of hope or conjecture or just like uh, that sort of thing could be enough for someone to general to genuinely address God in prayer and in ritual Mm-hmm. And in fact, even to have a genuine relationship, if it turns out that God does exist. Yeah. So it's, I, I wonder, there's like a internalist, externalist uh, kind of a correlation or 
Uh, yeah. And Algus thinks it, it depends on whether you're in the good case, whether the person is alive, then you have a relationship. It doesn't have to do with whether you, your belief uh, is more than 50% or something like that, like the internalist right. might say. Okay. Yeah. So you, you still have to have some kind of cognitive attitude toward the claim. Otherwise, that, you wouldn't act on that. You wouldn't, right? Is that is that right? You wouldn't right. say, it's hold on. Be, it's got to be, as it were, you're, you're sort of trying to... Um, relate to God in these ways. Yeah. Which would be irrational if you were sure that God didn't exist. Yeah. And in order for you to do that when you think the probability is low, to still like invest the time when the probability you have got to think the stakes are really high. Yeah. So there's some kind of a Pascalian thing going on there. Right, 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 right. Um it's but, fascinating. Uh but yeah, if you've got the right kind of like hope or something like that, hope or conjecture or acceptance for the sake of argument, mm-hmm. and the stakes are high that you're going to kind of invest this effort just on the off chance that it works. Yeah. Just like trying to talk to that person who you think is almost certainly dead. Yeah. Right. You, if if you, uh, you know, that I think can be the basis for, for genuine, uh, for genuinely succeeding in relating to God. Yeah. Man, that's so fascinating. I I think that's, that's, that could be a whole nother podcast as, as long as, I guess, as long as like the, the reason for your 90% uh, disbelief or, I don't, it's not right, but, but the, the credence or whatever being up to 90% that, it, that he doesn't, he's not alive buried underneath, as long as it's not like a moral failing or something like you're actively, right. you've, you've actually put yourself in that position or something. But if it's like a genuine, like I've heard good arguments against God's existence or evil and suffering in my own life has, has raised that credence. I think, yeah, there's, there's more stuff that could go into it. It's just, that's a really fascinating topic. I think that's, that's like a protheism, antitheism debate as well. And that's cool. This is this is great. We went all over the place here today. Uh, Dr. Pierce, thanks so much for, for coming on and talking about this paper. Um, I'd love to do it again. I'd love to talk more about authorial analogy stuff. I'm, I'm so glad that you're continuing to, to do that work. Uh, I need to grab that book with you and Oppie and, uh, and check that out as well. Great. Uh, thank you for having me on. This has been fun. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, though, where, where can people find more of your, uh, more of your works? Yeah, so my, my website is kennypierce.net, and you can kind of see all my published work there and an occasionally updated blog. I have a much more frequently updated Twitter feed at Pierce. <laughs> awesome. Okay, I'll put a link uh, to the in the description to all that good stuff. Um, again, man, thanks. This has been huge. Folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.